Qualcomm is the mother of a bigger dragon. Insider MVPs are on the outside. VMware and Broadcom face yet more questions. WD is spinning something out. And we're going to put a leash on the AI in our closer look in this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Hi, I'm Tom Hollingsworth. Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, November the 1st. And happy All Saints Day, happy Day of the Dead, and happy Extra Mile Day. So if you're out there going for a run, you better put an extra mile on it. We always go the extra mile here at the Rundown. My pleasure today is to be joined by Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, it's good to see you again. It is nice to be seen, Mr. Hollingsworth, and I'm going to go the extra mile on United Airlines so that I can requalify for elite status. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot of stories we want to jump into today, and we're going to start off with some exciting chip news because Qualcomm is set to challenge Intel's dominance in the Windows laptop market with its upcoming Snapdragon X Elite SoC. This features a custom-designed ARM CPU core they're calling Orion, and it has 12 CPU cores embedded in it. The chip promises significant performance improvements, including things like ray tracing, advanced AI processing, and several other enhancements. It's positioned to launch mid-2024, and it's going to compete with some of Intel's other offerings. But as we just found out, Intel, or Apple just released their new M3 chip series with a lot of these same features. And this is going to be a really interesting take when it comes to how the CPU market's going to line up. Stephen, what are your thoughts about this new Snapdragon? Well, it's uh, pretty awesome. Um, to echo my friends over at 6.5, uh, Pat Moorhead uh, was pretty impressed by this. He was at the, at the announcement. And, um, you know, I have to say, I'm pretty impressed by it as well. Um, this is uh, quite the move forward for Qualcomm to be able to offer a processor that really, you know, this does everything Apple's M series does, except not from Apple. Now, that being said, it could be said that it's kind of from Apple because it was designed by the team behind the A-Series way back when. But really, this is, you know, Qualcomm deserves a big pat on the back for what they've done here with the Snapdragon X Elite. And frankly, I think that this processor is going to make some waves because, as you mentioned, this is not really intended to compete with Apple so much as it is intended to compete with Intel and AMD in the laptop and desktop market. Yes, that's right, desktop. And how about the server market? I could see this processor being used in things like edge servers and uh, thin servers and so on out there in the cloud. And also the fact that Qualcomm is able to deliver a processor on the ARM architecture that is just so solid overall. I mean, it's got PCIe 4. Um, it's got USB 4, which of course is, includes Thunderbolt. Um, this suggests that they could take this same basic architecture and really use it in other places. The other suggestion here, of course, is just another nail in that, um, I was going to say coffin, but it's not really a coffin, but it, it, you know, this shows that ARM is really right there with x86. Now, to that note, as we mentioned um, in the introduction here, Apple just announced their M3 series, which is honestly an incremental update over the M1 and M2. I think the message from M3 is that Apple is rejiggering a little bit what Pro and Max mean, um, you know, by basically moving the M3 down to the MacBook Pro, by having the M3 Pro be a little less Pro, and having the Max have a little space behind it in terms of being the real pro processor. Uh, but the Qualcomm Snapdragon here is really, um, on spec-wise, looks an awful lot like that M3 Max. 
And again, this all shows that, um, you know, the ARM chips are right there, ready to compete with Intel x86 and AMD in the laptop and um, desktop market, just like Apple showed with their uh, Apple Silicon series. And just like we're hearing rumors that AMD and NVIDIA are about to introduce as well. This segment is really heating up. Microsoft is said to be discontinuing its Windows Insider MVP program. This was an initiative that rewarded Windows enthusiasts with access to the company's engineering teams and other fancy perks. Uh, this is part of Microsoft's broader effort to streamline its MVP-style programs, which set the trend in the industry over the, the last 20 years for influencer marketing. And full disclosure, I was a Microsoft MVP for many years, as are many of our Tech Field Day delegates. The decision is thought to represent more of a product management and product focus shift than a move away from the MVP Insider program. Uh, what do you think, Tom, and how does this reflect on the broader world of these uh, insider and influencer marketing programs? So I think, as you mentioned, it's very important to note that this is not the end of the insider program in general. This is just the end of the specific insider program related to Windows. And I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Panos Panay, who used to be in charge of that Windows division, has recently left. And according to rumors, he wasn't exactly happy when his departure. But I want to look for a moment on the technology side. One of the reasons why <clears throat> programs like the Insider MVPs or you know Cisco Champions or EMC Elect or pretty much any of these influencer outreach programs exist is because they're doing two things. One, they're doing marketing for the, for the group. And two, they're soliciting feedback for people. If you're doing marketing for something, there has to be a payoff for it, right? Like I'm not just pouring marketing dollars into something for the heck of it. I need to see real value for what I'm getting. And that usually leads to things like uh, higher sentiment analysis. You know, people are happier with what you're doing or more sales. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I certainly didn't pay for the last couple of versions of Windows because they were more or less free. I mean, Windows 10 and Windows 11 were offered for free to anybody who had a Windows 7 license. And even before that, like you have to go a long way back before you realize that there was an operating system, like people pay for operating systems. How, how crazy is that? But that's the real problem that we're running into here. If you have an insider program that's dedicating resources to anything, like insider MVPs for Windows had access to the engineering teams inside of Redmond. Well, if they're talking to the insiders, they're not doing their jobs. They're not providing value to the company necessarily directly. So what do we do? Well, if the product is free, we have to find another way to collect that data. And I think that this is maybe the first shift with Panos's departure, looking at the possibility that Windows is going to become kind of a utility. Like, would you expect to have a Linux Insider program? I mean, okay, yeah, the kernel mailing list people. But realistically speaking, the Linux kernel is just a small part of a bigger system. And I think Microsoft is starting to realize that. Windows is just a thing that applications run on now. I mean, the emphasis is on things like Office or Azure or any of their development environments. It's not on the operating system itself. Like the, the days of the Woody Leonhard books that were four inches thick, detailing every entry in, in any file are gone. Windows just kind of exists, just like Mac OS, just like Chrome OS. <clears throat> the, the ultimate goal of this is to make the operating system disappear. Well, if that's the case, you don't need an insider group for that. And I think that that's gonna speak to a larger problem that we're gonna have in the industry very soon, which is those 
influencer outreach marketing programs are going to have to start showing a lot of value in order to be valuable. We've already seen some of them starting to contract. They're, they're focusing them on different areas. They're splitting them apart in order to see where the value is coming from. Ultimately, I think that this speaks to maybe in 24 and possibly even to 25 uh, contraction of these programs as people realign their goals and try to figure out exactly what they're trying to get out of them. Stephen, Intel continues to divest their non-strategic assets. This time, it's their silicon photonics-based optical module business, which was re reportedly quite successful and very reliable for scalable, pluggable modules. The business has been sold to Jabil in lining with the shifting demands of data center ecosystem, including hyperscale and AI cloud data centers. This divestment follows Intel's recent exit from the networking switching and server business, among others, and it seems to be part of Intel's new strategy of focusing on the core manufacturing and processor business. And Stephen, we, we talk a lot on the rundown about what happens when Intel kind of decides that they want to move a business out and, and sell it off or, or spin it out to somebody else. What does the change in this optical pluggable module business mean for people in the industry? I think that this reflects both on Intel as well as on the overall broader market. So as you've said, um, many people, I think, in our listenership are aware of what uh, pluggable optical modules are. But essentially, these are um, little guys that look basically like a pack of gum. They stick into a, a network switch um, and they allow you to connect a fiber optic cable or um, it, there's other options as well, including uh, copper based cables and um, have a high-speed uplink or downlink from the switch. Uh, these things are typically sold separately from the switch, uh, though often they are bundled by a reseller or a distributor. And um, Intel's have been pretty darn good. So if, if you're not familiar, silicon photonics is a very clever technology that uh, basically combines the optical part and the electrical part onto the same chip and allows the system to operate more efficiently, lower power, less heat, et cetera. Because these things can actually draw a surprising amount of power and generate a surprising amount of heat. So Intel was a pioneer in silicon photonics. They've done a great job with, uh, with this technology. And they've been reportedly, as you said, been incredibly successful at selling these things. One of their big customers, of course, is um, Meta, which has bought a ton of Intel's silicon photonics, according to reports and, and public information. Um, private information suggests that these things are also extremely successful with every other hyperscaler, and in fact, in industry. So why would Intel get rid of this? Well, it's the same story again. Intel is getting out of businesses that are mature, non-core, and not directly related to their overall focus on manufacturing. So it makes sense for Intel to move out of this, just like they did with the NUCs and the servers and the switches and all these other things, <laughs> drones, you know, everything else that they've gotten out of. Um, now, when we look at the overall market, though, this actually makes even more sense when we see how things are shifting. So who is Jabil? Well, Jabil is basically a supply chain company. They're a company that basically makes and integrates all sorts of stuff, literally like, um, you know, smartphone tech, um, cell tower tech, uh, IoT, industrial, ag, everything, including, of course, enterprise servers, uh, cloud servers, hyperscale, AI servers. Um, Jabil is the kind of company that basically makes their money 
uh, putting all this stuff together and getting it out there into the market. And they're going to be able to take Intel's uh, silicon photonics um, optical modules and just put them out there everywhere. It, it's, it's, it shows that the, um, the once vaunted specialized data center technology world is now just the broader tech world. And it's just part of the overall ecosystem. So when you see a company like Jable taking these things and distributing them, what that says to me is that a lot of the things that we thought were specialized are now, well, just part of the overall tech market. And so it makes sense for Intel to get out of it. it makes sense for Jable to get into it. The $69 billion acquisition of VMware by Broadcom has hit a delay as they await approval from Chinese regulators. The companies continue to express confidence that the deal will close before the November 26th deadline, but the delay could challenge that. It's believed to be linked to recent U.S. restrictions on Chinese access to high-performance semiconductors. Tom, do you think this uh, could derail the acquisition overall, or do you think that VMware and Broadcom have a solution? I think Broadcom has a solution. I don't think VMware cares one way or the other. Now, obviously, in the grander scheme of things, this could be a huge problem if suddenly the brakes are put on this. But I think what's happening is, is that China is putting pressure on this particular acquisition, which, depending on where you look at it, is either the largest or the second largest in history beside, beside uh, Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard. Um, they want some assurances from the U.S. government that, that we're not going to play these cat and mouse games with the chip manufacturing stuff anymore. And the biggest problem here is remember that Broadcom has already kind of played this game once before, too. They were headquartered in China for the longest time, and then suddenly they're headquartered in Silicon Valley. And they moved over there because they thought it would be easier to appease U.S. regulators by being in the U.S. with their headquarters and still just having a large presence in China. Well, now the Chinese are kind of influ they're influencing those decisions a little bit more. And I think part of what they're doing is they're playing this wait and see game because we saw this a little bit with ARM where they're waiting for the West to go through all the rigorous decisions and things like that and kind of push a little bit and take a wait and see approach. If the West decides that it's not going to happen, then they don't have to get their hands dirty. But if the West decides to green light something, now they can come back and play a little bit of a, you know, a upsmanship, if you want to call it that, by saying, well, we're not so sure and we have our own concerns and we need you to give us assurances. And, and basically kind of not saying, but saying, we want our cut of the pie too. I think what's going to happen, you know, given that this is the 1st of November and VMware and Broadcom are saying that this will be done in three and a half weeks, I think what's going to happen is, is that Broadcom is going to have to make some uh, assurances behind the scenes. Uh, that will make sure that the Chinese still have access to certain technologies, uh, that they're going to kind of go to bat for them in the U.S. to kind of alleviate some of these pressures. Uh, and I think of ultimately at the 11th hour, China will clear this merger because to not have it go through as big as this is would actually be detrimental to Broadcom at this point, which given that you've attached your name to it as the Chinese, you know, whatever committee is responsible for this, would actually be a bigger problem in the long run because now you're going to have a bunch of Silicon Valley targeting you for holding this up, given that we've already seen a lot of movement internal to VMware based on this acquisition. I mean, they're basically saying that it's done. To pull out now would be a huge hit. Stephen, uh, we've talked a little bit over the last few months about some of the stuff that's going on over in Western Digital. And this saga has reached a new phase because the company has announced that they will split their flash memory business out from their hard drive division. This follows news last week that shareholder SK Hynix has halted a proposed merger 
with the business of Japan's Kyosha. The pressure to make this move came from everyone's favorite activist investor, Elliott Management, who, of course, sings the song of unlocking greater shareholder value. What does this mean for the storage giant splitting these two divisions apart, Stephen? Yeah, this story is extremely confusing, especially when you uh, think about, wait, didn't I just see a story that, that said that they were not going to do something with the flash memory business? I can understand it. Um, but overall, as you say, it's about unlocking greater shareholder value. We're done here, right? Now, no, it, it actually is about unlocking greater shareholder value. Basically, if you look at Western Digital's share price, it's priced as if it didn't have a flash memory business, if it was only a storage, uh, a hard disk drive business. And well, that's bad for Western Digital and for Western Digital investors. I, I, you know, I don't want to give Elliot too much credit, but they're right about that. Um, essentially, what happened is Western Digital, you may remember, a few years back, uh, Western Digital bought uh, SanDisk. And um, along with that acquisition back in 2015, uh, Western Digital got a joint venture with Toshiba to make NAND Flash because, you know, remember, that's what SanDisk was. Um, so uh, Toshiba then spun that business off into Kyoksha um, with, in, in, in 2017. Uh, SK Hynix was also involved in that. What, what happened last week is that SK revealed during an earnings call that they just were not interested in um, merging uh, with Kyoksha which would have basically taken care of Western Digital's flash problem. And so as soon as they announced that, the Western Digital uh, and no doubt the uh, Elliott Capital folks announced, well, guess what? We're going to split these companies. Now, this is not a, um, an acquisition. It's more like one of those kind of fancy uh, business spinouts that you hear about where basically a company takes part of itself and, and IPOs that part or spins it out in some way. That's pretty much what's going to happen here. So as soon as they uh, complete this, which should, should happen, uh, you know, somewhere around the middle of next year, uh, Western Digital will be the name of a hard disk maker and something else will be the name of a flash memory maker. Now, they'll have corporate ties still and they'll still have cross investments and so on. But basically that new flash thing, which is a joint venture with Kyoksha, um, will uh, have its own listing and have its own products and basically float, kind of like Solidime in, um, did with Intel and SK Hynix. So you can kind of imagine that that future company will be sort of another Solidime. And just like Solidime, it'll probably make good flash products and be out there in the market and stuff and probably make a bunch of money and, and everybody will smile uh, at unlocking this shareholder value. Now, um, I do have one thing to say about this merger, though, uh, and I, I know that all of the management of uh, Western Digital watches our show on a daily basis. So I'm just going to say to you right now, that company, you should call it SanDisk. We'll leave it at that. All right. Well, Stephen, we had something we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at uh, because there's a, a bigger movement going on that is getting the federal government involved in some hot technology. President Joe Biden has signed a comprehensive executive order addressing the safety and governance of artificial intelligence in the United States. The order, running nearly 20,000 words, signifies a significant shift toward enhanced AI government, covering areas like transparency, safety data, sharing federal standards, tests, ethical considerations across a variety of sectors. 
It requires tech companies developing large AI models to share safety data with the U.S. government before releasing them to the public, which addresses transparency concerns advocated by major AI experts. This comes just before the U.S., China, European Union, and other major tech companies attend an international summit on AI risks at Bletchley Park, organized by the U.K. government. Are we finally going to do something about leashing AI? Well, yeah, I think that there's there's multiple parts here. Um, first off, remember that the European Union uh, proposed an AI law uh, actually a couple of years ago, um, funny enough, uh, before the boom of generative AI. And so they had to go back and revise that a little bit to reflect the whole Gen AI, Gen AI universe. Uh, then uh, we've heard a lot of hand wringing and teeth gnashing from politicians. But, you know, it's funny, I think it was really the emergence of some uh, deep fakes and some of the president and so on, and some fake uh, images uh, related to the uh, Hamas and Israel war that have uh, really spurred the politicians into action here and spurred them into action. It did. Like you said, I mean, we in, in a couple of, of weeks here, we've got a massive 20,000 word executive order related to AI in the United States, as well as this uh, you know, global meeting organized uh, by the UK. So I'm gonna start with Biden's executive order and then maybe we can kind of dive into some of the other aspects of this story. So what is the executive order really? Well, essentially it is both a red light and a green light for AI, that's my take on it. So on the red light side, um, the Biden administration has ordered that businesses uh, uh, share information about their safety test results with their AI systems, that they develop tools to help ensure that these systems are safe and secure, that they consider the, um, the, the impact of AI on the development of nasty stuff like biological materials and nuclear and terrorist stuff, you know, that they protect America from fraud and deception due to AI, because of course there's been a lot of stories about you know AI uh, generated voices and you know hey mom I'm in jail you know you got to bail me out being generated from your uh, TikTok postings and things like that. Also, it would establish a cybersecurity program um, to develop AI tools to fix um, holes caused by AI in the nation's critical infrastructure, and um, and, and and basically direct further action now. The problem is overall, though, that none of this has actual teeth. It's all based on um, buy-in from the industry, and and frankly, industry, um, despite what we've seen, you know, with uh, you know OpenAI going out there and meeting with basically every politician that they can get their hands on, um, they want there to be restrictions, but they want those restrictions to be beneficial, not, not uh, counter uh, to their to their desires. And so, uh, you know, I think that they would love there to be uh, restrictions on the development of competing um, AI systems. I think it would be it would be great for them if, if it cemented their dominance in the field. But I don't think they're too excited about having to share the sources of their information and having to um, protect privacy and having to ask the government before they can roll out new AI tools. No, 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 no. We don't like that part. We like the part that keeps us in charge. And frankly, a lot of this stuff, there's no answer to it either. So things mentioned in the Biden executive order include um, equity and civil rights and guidance that um, AI systems can't discriminate based on age or gender or race. These are absolutely things I think that most people would be in, inspired by 
But also, I think most people would be kind of scratching their heads about how do we actually do this? Because essentially, um, you know, how do we how do we ensure that systems aren't discriminating based on age? Now, as I said, it's a red light and a green light, because on the green light side, they're also trying to bring in new AI workers and AI industries and innovation and competition, and all that. So they're going to start bringing in, um, you know, creating new visas to get people to move to the United States to work on AI systems. They're going to try to have a new AI and research resource, and they're going to try to promote ecosystems and so on, because it's not about slamming on the brakes of AI, just like OpenAI would like new regulations that support their business and hinder their competition. The Biden administration would love restrictions that block global um, you know, use of AI for you know, things they don't like, but also bring more research here to the United States. And that's the other angle on this story. So I, I look at what we're trying to do here, and I say we as, as the US, and it, it jumps out at me because there's a couple of reasons why I almost feel like we, we're at a point where this has to be done, because we're letting the technology outpace our ability to control it, for lack of a better term. And this is not the first time this happened in human history. I mean, honestly, if you want to think about humans, we're really good at developing things and then letting them race as fast as possible and then going, oh, wait, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And anybody who's over the age of, I don't know, about 60 or 70 knows that from what happened with the nuclear arms race. I mean, look up some of the crazy projects that we wanted to create a harbor in Alaska by detonating nuclear weapons. Why? Because we could. We had them and they work. And now, 50, 60, 70 years later, we're like, that was a terrible idea. And I'm very glad we didn't do it because that's just dumb. Uh, you, you run into these kinds of situations where people just want to let the technology do what it does. But the difference between a tool like a weapon and software algorithms like what we're dealing with here in AI is that they can iterate much faster than we could have ever hoped for in the past. And one of the things that we're running into, kind of like you said, is we're having to put some of the things that we believe should be standard protections in place. Don't discriminate based on people's gender, skin color, orientation, age, all of that stuff. And you're like, well, that's just dumb. Why would that have to happen? Because AI algorithms are not programmed by divine intervention. They're programmed by people and people are flawed and people have biases, whether they realize them or not. Ask anyone who's worked in AI and they'll tell you some of the dumb things that AI systems have done because you've forgotten to program certain parameters into them. Uh, one of my favorite ones is the fact that there was a problem with an AI algorithm where it determined that if there was a picture of a ruler in a picture, you had cancer because it inferred that when they put a ruler in a picture to measure the size of a mole or a spot, um, you know, obviously they want to track its growth over time. Well, the system said, well, wait, there's a ruler in this picture. Therefore, they must have cancer because every other picture that we've seen with a ruler, that person's had cancer. Like that's a bias that can be introduced without even realizing it accidentally. What happens when it's a malicious bias that we introduce into the algorithm? Now it propagates over generations of the system. And I think what happened is, is that maybe not tech people had hoped that the system would just kind of fix itself over time. Like, you know, eventually how people kind of grow up to not be jerks. Well, the problem is, is that as people, we have societal pressures to not do that. Sure, some of us do grow up to be jerks, but most of us kind of eventually kind of hit this happy medium where we follow norms and, and mores in society. 
We don't have that in AI because there is no norm for AI. So if it wants to, you know, if you feed it a voice and tell it to sound like this other voice, it doesn't know that, you know, you shouldn't impersonate the president. Or if you morph all these other things, it doesn't know any better. And so if we don't put these controls in place now, we will not be able to control it later. Once the runaway starts, once we head down that slippery slope at like bobsled speeds, we're not going to be able to put the brakes on without wrecking the whole thing. So I applaud the Biden administration for saying now is the time, maybe a little later than they probably should have, but this is the government, they, they take their time. But Stephen, do you honestly believe that controlling AI at this rate will stifle innovation and cause people to go, well, if you won't let us make it do what we want it to do, we're just going to give up? Yeah, that's the problem here. And 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 as I said, the, the problem with the Biden administration's executive order is that it's an executive order, not a law. It's also an executive order that only applies to the United States. Um, somebody can do this in another country. And most of these large AI companies are international at this point. Um, and that's actually something interesting about the uh, Bletchley Summit that I want to point out. Um, so uh, Kamala Harris is uh, giving a speech, actually probably about the time you're, you're listening to this, about um, basically supporting what I just said about the Biden administration's goal, which is basically, let's um, be careful about this stuff, but let's also encourage this stuff in ways that we want it to be. Um, the Biden administration is also um, announcing that they have gotten 30 countries to sign on to a declaration about the use of AI by the military. But if you look at the, the, the list of countries, surprise, surprise, it's basically the US and its allies. And the rest of the and the rest of the world is like, yeah, whatever. Um, this is the problem. Now, when the UK government proposed this AI summit at Bletchley, uh, there was some hand wringing over there about the fact that China was invited. They're saying, oh, China, you know, there are, you know, they're the bad guys in this story. Like, we shouldn't have them involved. No way. We should absolutely have China involved. If China isn't part of this discussion, then they're going to just do whatever they want to do. Honestly, we need to have the entire world involved in this discussion, because as you're saying, um, it, it doesn't matter if the United States or if, you know, this this little corner wants to wants to keep this genie in the bottle. It, it, the genie is going to get out if unless the whole world is on board. And there's no way the whole world is going to get on board with the United States deciding what is and isn't an ethical use of AI. That just ain't going to happen. Now, it might happen here in the U.S., but it's not going to it's not going to work globally. Um, you know, it's not going to work if we don't allow China to be part of the discussion, let alone some of the other countries that the U.S. really doesn't want at the table. Frankly, if we're going to have a solution to AI, if we're going to figure out how to deal with this politically, it has to be a really, truly global initiative. Now, that being said, uh, anyone who's looked at the United Nations knows that global initiatives are really hard. Getting the UN Security Council to vote on anything, uh, even things that seem very clear to you, um, well, that's a big challenge. And so I think that, that it is worthwhile for Biden to issue an executive order for, or for Sunak or for the European Union to enact a law. But I think that we also have to be realistic about what these things can accomplish. So, I mean, overall, I think that we need to be doing this. We need to be having this conversation. I am thrilled that the government finally clued in and wants to have policy discussions about AI and about the harmful effects of AI. But I am going to be watching it because you know how it goes with governments. As soon as they get involved, they are going to make stupid pronouncements and, and, and bogus decisions and, and impractical choices about this stuff. And it's just not going to work. So eh, we'll see what happens. 
I'm glad we're having the conversation. Yeah, and we're definitely going to keep an eye on this as, as it goes, because this is one of those processes that will take time. And there'll be negotiation and all that kind of stuff. So look for this in a future episode of The Rundown for sure. Uh, we do have a very busy week coming up next week, though. Um, Stephen, what are you going to be doing first thing next week? Well, I'm actually headed to uh, KubeCon in Chicago. I'm very glad to be headed back there. Thank you, uh, CNCF, for inviting me. Uh, we will be doing some promotional interviews. We'll be recording some roundtable discussions, some on-premise podcasts, on-premises, as well as some of our tech talks. So look for that from KubeCon in Chicago. Also, we have a very special event coming up live streaming on November 9th. I'm not sure I can say much about it, but uh, keep an eye on our social media channels for a special thing that we're doing on Thursday next week. And on Wednesday of next week, right before that, um, you can tune in to see Security Field Day 10. We've got two great presentations from Forward Networks and Druva that we're going to be bringing to you live. The schedule is on techfieldday.com if you want to tune in. Follow along, uh, leave a comment on our LinkedIn live stream. We love to read those comments and get you involved in the action. Uh, ask a question, make a comment, something like that. And then the week after that, uh, November 15th and 16th. I'm going to be back in Silicon Valley for Mobility Field Day 10. We have more great presentations from some of the leaders in the wireless uh, technology space. And you can find out a list of who they are at techfieldday.com, as well as download the calendar invites so that you don't miss a minute of the action as we're putting together some great stuff there. And then, of course, Stephen, right after Thanksgiving, we got one more thing coming up. Yep. Uh, looks like we're going to be headed out to AWS reInvent. So I hope we see you there. And we hope that we'll see each and every one of you next week for the rundown. We usually publish these about 1230 Eastern time on Wednesday. Um, we love bringing you the great news of all the stuff that's going on. So if you have anything you want us to cover, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT, use hashtag rundown, uh, or just follow us on any social media platform of choice. And uh, make sure you subscribe to us in your podcast application so you can get us on the go when you're out running around and you need a quick catch up on the news. We'll be back next week with more great stories and more great conversations. So until then, for Tom Hollingsworth and Stephen Foskett, thank you very much for tuning in for this episode of The Rundown. Happy fall, folks, and we will see you soon.